2020. Now, why is that? Oh, they can add. So if you, do you think anyone would do that? Goodness. Okay, so you have to do 2020. Otherwise, if you put 20, they could put 2019 or something like that. Well, there you go. You learned something. See, I'm glad I came to church. I learned how to do that. Hey, hey, now that you're comfortable, would you stand up just for a second? Yeah. I mean, I have to stand the whole time. So can you just stand up just for a second and um, hold on to your chair if you need be uh, and put your weight on your left foot and raise your right foot. And that is because in 2020, we want to start off on the right foot. Is that? Okay, there you go. So a guy did that in the last class and I thought it. This is kind of like what we call senior aerobics. That's the extent of it right there. Yeah. Nice to see Ken is ready. We're going to have an array of guest speakers in 2020. Freeman Tomlin, a gift, is our regular communicator. Thank God for Freeman. Raised up here. Went off to grow up. Came back mature and ready to minister to us. And that guy has a servant's heart and a heart for the word of God. So we're blessed to have Freeman. But though he's our regular communicator, we're going to have guests come in and assume the platform pulpit. One Sunday a month in 2020. Our first is next week. Jay Louder, no stranger to Sagemont Church. We're trying to bring in an array of diverse kinds of communicators, none of whom are specifically being looked to as the next pastor of this church. That's not what we're doing. That is the responsibility of the search team. All we're doing is wanting to show people how God can speak through an array of different kinds of people. And as you listen to these different kinds of communicators, that could help you to pray for our next pastor. You could say, oh, I'd like to have someone like him, something like that. Anyway, Jay Louder is an evangelist, and they get a bum rap, but don't attribute it to him. He's great and gifted. Some people can say the same thing and get different results. When he shares the gospel and invites people to embrace it, there are results. So we've asked Jay to come and start us off in this new year, and so he'll be here in both services next week. On Wednesday night, not this one, but the next. So that would be the 15th. We have another special speaker. His name is Dr. James Tour. He's a professor at Rice University. He is a genius. He's a scientist, voted one of the top 50 in the world. He's an expert on something called nanotechnology. Have no idea what it means, but I really enjoy saying it. <laughs> anyway, he's coming. Uh, some people say uh, uh, science and faith are at odds with one another. He disagrees. He thinks good science is absolutely compatible with the scriptures. He's a thoroughgoing biblicist. He takes his marching orders from scripture. He's Jewish. He's a believer. There's more than one. And so, um, anyway, he will be our guest on the 15th. And so, if you have a friend who has this position, your faith is yours, but I'm scientific, then you might want to really invite your friend. We're going to give Dr. Tour 
a longer period of time than is normally available on Wednesday night. So at about 6.10, he's going to start going. And so I uh, would like to encourage you to think about coming and inviting someone, especially a young person like a high schooler, because they're hearing things and um, maybe not the right things. And James Tour, he's not one of us pastor guys. This is a world-renowned scientist who is going to share with you that he uh, has adhered to the biblical record as a prominent scientist and sees no incompatibility there at all. So that's James Tour, Dr. Tour, on the 15th, Wednesday night. And then in February, our guest speaker will be Dr. Jim Richards, who's the executive director of the Southern Baptists of Texas, which is an affiliation we are part of. He's a wonderful and godly man. Then in March, a very unique communicator, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston, who's a philosopher. In fact, he heads up an organization called the Christian Thinkers Society. So if you're just a Christian but you don't think, apparently you can't be a member. But if you're a Christian thinker, he's the guy for you. Anyway, he's really cutting edge, youthful, contemporary in dress and style of communication. We're trying to mix it up, older communicators, younger communicators, and so on and so forth. Anyway, he's presently a faculty member at Houston Baptist University. He's authored many books. He's been on many TV shows. I think you're going to find him to be interesting. Anyway, those will be our next three speakers, and we'll keep you posted on others to come. And I hope you come and get excited about hearing from them. The search team is actively engaged. They will resume their responsibilities today at 2 o'clock. They took some holiday breaks, but they meet otherwise every Sunday, and we are permitted to share with you some of what they're doing, so I will. I'll tell you what they've thus far completed doing in the months in which they've been meeting. Uh, they've developed three profiles, which are quite wonderful. One is a church profile to give a potential candidate an idea of what kind of church is Sagemont. Keep that kid. Hey! God bless you. See that couple? I married them, and now look what happened. Look at this. Premarital counseling was insufficient. God bless you all. Hey, listen, Rachel, don't worry. Grandma's here. Just pass on the baby to Grandma. That's what grandmas are for. You guys can go get some coffee. Um, so a church profile, they finished. Second, pastor profile. What kind of pastor does Sagemont Church desire? You had a role in it. Remember that survey you took? Some time ago, we did the phone thing and all that kind of stuff. And so the search team has compiled the results, used it in part to make up what they call the pastor profile. Then something called community profile. Sagemont Church is located in a certain geography. We're surrounded by a certain demographic. And in fairness to a potential candidate, the search team thought it would be nice in advance to let the candidate know what our demographic is here in the Sagemont area. So they've done those three things. And then a fourth thing, they've compiled a list of theological questions. There actually were hundreds that were submitted. And the, the team has boiled it down to about 15 questions, which will go out to a potential candidate. Uh, and uh, that candidate will be asked to give a written response to those 15 questions. If the answers are acceptable, then questions 16 through 400 <laughs> will eventually be put to that candidate. But 
no sense going to question 16 if the answers to the first 15 don't look so hot. So that's how they're approaching that. Uh, they will begin, um, I think perhaps today, to look specifically at resumes. So we are authorized to tell you all of this, but no names. So don't even think about that. And that's not to keep secrets. It's to protect the uh, applicant because probably all those expressing an interest in this position are already serving as pastors and it must be on their terms that they communicate with their church what they want to that's not our prerogative we don't want things to leak and therefore uh, we cannot reveal any names and we will not but just to let you know this is what they're doing in today's bulletin and everyone including the website you will see little notices from the search team including prayer prompters so you could be praying now i find this very exciting uh, i am praying specific things for the one who would be our next pastor and um uh it's kind of fun because you can kind of dream oh i'd like to have a person and then you you, you think about it, and it's very safe to do that because God could either, in answer to your prayers, he could say, thank you, that's a very good suggestion, I'll keep that in mind, or he could say, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, but you see, that prayer is safe, because here's what's exciting, our next pastor is already in existence, did you know that? He's out there somewhere, he just doesn't know he's our next pastor, and, and we don't know that either, Why? Because God is preparing him for us and us for him. And the process apparently is valuable. Otherwise, God would make it happen yesterday. Uh, typically, God doesn't because there's value in the process. So the search team is uh, engaged actively in the process. And you could be by praying, oh, God, would you be preparing our next pastor for us and help us to discover him and him us. Now, the search team has... Uh, has a policy, all 12 members must agree on a ca potential candidate before they bring his name to you. They do not have the authority to select the next pastor. They have the responsibility of doing all this hard work of identifying the potential next pastor. You decide on the next pastor. That's called the congregational vote. You can be sure, however, whenever it is they feel led to bring a name to you, that person has been closely scrutinized. And how anyone could be agreed upon by 12 very diverse people is really going to be amazing to me. Almost a human impossibility, and that's the idea. You see, the search team wants to make sure God's hand is in this. And they are determined to be patient as long as it takes before all 12 recognize that's the man for Sagemont Church. And because there are men and women and old ones and young ones and all the different kinds of people on the team, again, for them to be unified in this will be a sure sign that God's hand is in it. I personally think it's a very safe, wonderful, uh, God-ordained process. So you could pray for them. That's what's happening in 2020. Now, I share all those things with you because I'm not prepared Actually, I am. We've been in Hebrews, and we'll continue right now. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. Let me refresh your memory. Whoever wrote Hebrews, we don't know who, uh, has a point, uh, and it has to do with the recipients. The book is written to Hebrews, three kinds of Hebrews or Jews. Some believed in Yeshua, Jesus, as Savior, for sure. They were believers like you and I. A second group of these Hebrews... 
did not. And a third group said they did, but probably didn't. So they professed to know the Messiah, but probably did not. So that's, that's kind of a mixed bag. They're all Hebrews, but three different groups. And the recipient is addressing them all as one. Therefore, we have to very carefully go through this text to discern who he's speaking to. Now, he's speaking to those who would be prone to fall back into Judaism. Why? Well, because they're under persecution at this time for bearing the name of Jesus. So things are getting hot and sticky. And they're entertaining the idea of going back to the old ways in order to avoid the heat. The writer of Hebrews has an objective, and that is to discourage them from doing it by proving to them, no, no, Jesus is better. Judaism is not as good. In fact, Jesus is better than any other name. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than prophets. Jesus is better than Moses. Those are all the points the writer has making. And today, this point, Jesus offers better rest than any you can find in your previous religious system. Now, when they thought of rest, they're thinking of Shabbat or Sabbath rest. It's a day ordained by God to cease from labor. Take a day off, said God, and rest. And so the seventh day is called the Sabbath. And the fourth commandment mandates that it be remembered and treated as being holy. So these, some in the crowd, are tempted to go back under Judaism, part of which involved the strictures associated with the Sabbath, therein to find rest. And the writer is saying, oh, no, don't do that. You cannot find a better kind of rest than in your pursuit of Jesus. So verse 9, that being the background, says this. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Here, the writer is not speaking of a day. The writer is speaking of a relationship. So here's the deal. Have you ever heard the term progressive revelation? It's fancy, but it only means when you start out reading the Bible in Genesis and move through, what God revealed is progressing. It's moving from a starting point to an ultimate point. For instance, you're here in the Old Testament and you read a lot about a building called the temple. It's an important building. God said to the people, build it uh, according to the directives I give you. Set it up on the hills of Jerusalem, and that's where I'll establish my presence. So if you want to meet with me, you have to go up to the temple. That's the Old Testament. Now, as you progress through the books of the Bible and you get here to the New Testament, you find out you is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so you see in the Old Testament, ultimate truth is given in a more simple physical way, a building, to reveal the ultimate spiritual truth oh no you don't go to a building to find god if you've accepted jesus he's implanted his very spirit in your life so that you're the temple of the spirit of god you could find him wherever you are he's not a localized god anymore you don't have to go up to jerusalem to find him you could find him in your heart at any place in any time so also in the old testament you have this day called the sabbath God created the universe six days and then rested from his labors to commemorate it. God said, do the same, rest from your labors, take a day off. Well, slaves, many were slaves in that day. No master is going to give a slave a day off. So for God to do this was meant to be quite a blessing. 
And so God gave the Sabbath to symbolize the cessation of one's labors and permission to rest. But now as you move through to the Old Testament, you will find out, I'll show you in Hebrews and other places, Sabbath is not a day, it's a relationship. And so the rest we enjoy and pursue is not confined to a 24-hour period. It has to do with the relationship with the Lord Jesus because he finished the work of making us right with God. We can take a day off, if you will. No, we can take every day off. We can enter into Sabbath rest. We can cease from our own labors to win God's favor because of the finished work of Christ by which we have God's favor. So someone said to me as a Jewish person, Stuart, why don't you keep the Sabbath? I said, I do. Whenever I get up and bask in the atmosphere of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever I get up and rest from this terrible burden of having to live up to God's standards in my own strength, whenever I rest in the merits of Christ, instead of promoting my own, I am observing the Sabbath. And so everything in the Old Testament points to him. The feasts of Israel, for instance, Passover. You have Passover, right? But then when you get to the New Testament, we read, for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. So the idea is not a day. All those special holy days have a holy objective. They're foreshadowings of the ultimate fulfillment, who is Jesus. Once all these things point to Jesus, you're done. You have come to the finish point, the point of rest. So says Paul, for instance, in this passage, Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink. That had to do with all the law of Moses. Eat this, don't eat that. Or in respect to a festival. Those are the feasts of Israel. Or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The writer of Hebrews is saying to those people what he's saying to us, why do you all want to go back to the shadow when the shadow's value is only that it reveals the substance? The substance is Christ. And so he's persuading these people, you're tempted to go back under Judaism. That's just the shadow of Messiah and sacrament. Look, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system Why don't we do that anymore? Because that, the endless succession of the sacrifice of bulls and goats, that too is just a foreshadowing of the ultimate lamb of God. You see what I mean? So when the shadow leads you to the substance, your journey is over. You can rest in it. So this is about Judaism, but frankly, any religion, ones you may even come from, though they have many beautiful aspects are troublesome and problematic in this regard. Religion is designed to give you something to boast in. I do this, I do that. Faith in Christ gives you nothing to boast in except what he's done for us. We hate that. That's why religion is attractive. You see, I would rather conform myself to the strictures of a religious system. And if I do more of those religious things than you do, that means I think I'm better in the eyes of God than you. Religion appeals to human pride. Christianity says, let your pride be nailed to the cross. You've got nothing to boast in because all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. You can boast in the glory of God, which is demonstrated on the cross, at which time God himself reduced himself to enfleshment so as to be your sin substitute. You boast in the cross and nothing else. So the writer here is saying, I know it's rough to follow the Lord Jesus, and you're going to take it on the chin by some, but he offers you a better deal than anything or anyone ever could. Don't go back under your system of self-righteousness or man-made religion when Jesus paid it all. Want to know what the three most beautiful words in all scripture is? They were uttered from the cross. Jesus said, it is finished. Finished. And so this is the Sabbath rest. The writer here is saying we should seek. I know this is true because look what it says in verse 10. The one who has entered his rest, God's rest, what has he done? Well, he has himself rested from his works as God did from his. When you as a Christian rest from your works by which you're trying to win the approval of almighty God. My heavens, that is Sabbath rest. Therefore, we're told in verse 11, be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Now, that is an irony. To work hard at resting is what it's saying. Isn't that interesting? That's because God knows human nature. And the hardest thing for us as Christians is to realize, based not on our performance, but on our position in Christ, we have the Father's love. That is so hard. It's counterintuitive. I'll tell you why. We think God is like everybody else. And for everyone else in your life, how you perform determines their response to you. For everyone. If you perform a certain way, you get that person's favor. If you underperform, you don't get that person's favor. And we think God is the same, but he's not. He already knows we're wipeouts. He knows where we fail, we're flawed, we're sinners. And yet, based on our faith, In his meritorious, sinless son, God has affixed his approval upon us. He's removed us from one sphere of striving and and working for his approval to another one in which we are now sons and daughters. Now, look, some here are parents, grandparents. Maybe you can partially relate. At what point do you give up on your rebellious son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter? At what point do you say... I've disowned you. I'm no longer your parent. I'm no longer your grandparent. Even though that one is rebellious and obnoxious and so on and so forth, at what point do you stop being concerned, stop praying, stop grieving? There's something about the tie there. It's inexplicable. It makes no sense. Their performance stinks, but based upon their position in your family, you'll never give up on that person. Now, if you and I can do that imperfectly, how much more the father? When we have been adopted as sons and daughters, performing to win his favor is over. So here's the biggest task for us in 2020. Let God love you more. I'll tell you why. In the atmosphere of God's love and approval, we perform better. In the athletic arena, teams uh, sometimes have the home field or home court advantage. What's the advantage? Well, more of the people in the stands are cheering than are criticizing. And when you have cheerleaders, it actually puts points on the scoreboard for you. Home 
field advantage. If you're a Christian, you have the home field advantage. Because your father is not criticizing. He's cheering you on. You know what he's saying? Stuart, you did not do good yesterday. It's over. Confess your sin. Enter into an agreement with me that it's covered by the blood of my son. Press on just as if you had not sinned. I'll never leave you or forsake you. You forfeited some opportunities, yeah, but you'll never forfeit my love. My love is a function of the fact that you're mine. It's not a function of what you do or do not do. Enter into Sabbath rest. It's not a day. It's a new relationship. It's a lifestyle. You have to really work on it. There's no room for lazy thinkers in the Christian life. If you let the day take you over and your mind just be filled with thoughts without challenging them, Well, you're in big trouble. You're not going to enjoy Sabbath rest. This really could be a happy new year if you and I get it together. Be diligent to enter into Sabbath rest. It's been provided by the Lord Jesus Christ who says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And it doesn't mean we're lazy and sin all the more. It's the motivation behind it all. It's not that we read the Bible more, pray more, give more, witness more. In order to win the favor of the Father, we want to do those things because we have the Father's favor in full and undiminished measure based upon our response to the Father's Son. It'll never be, what are you doing with the Bible? What are you doing with prayer? What are you doing? It'll always be, what are you doing with my Son? If you have embraced the son by faith, the one whom the father has sent, you have the father's approval. And there's no greater motivation for doing the right thing than knowing what your position is in Christ. Religion seeks to constrain our behaviors from the outside in. Christianity seeks to constrain our behavior based upon how God has responded to us. So Paul says, The love of Christ. That's not our love for him in the context. It's his for us. The love of Christ constrains us. His love for us is what influences our behavior. Not the fear of Christ. Not the uncertainty of where we stand with him. No, because we're irreversibly his. He'll never let us go. It's his unconditional, unwavering interminable love for us that's what's meant to constrain our behavior i'm not letting some rabbi tell me how to live some iman some pastor some priest i'm not letting some man-made religion constrain my behavior those motivations don't work what about this motivation Stuart? i love you more than anyone could i'll never let you go even when you're pretty unlovely even though you haven't done the right thing from time to time and thought, word, and deed, even when you've sinned, don't you understand? I got a solution for your sin problem. You're mine. I'm changing you. In fact, I began a good work in you. You can't finish it, but I will. One day I'm going to present you before me holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Work hard at entering into Sabbath rest. That's what it says. Verse 11. Now, here's the deal. Remember, the writer is writing to a mixed group of Jews. Some believe, some don't, some claim to, but don't. You can't know this. I mean, you're sitting next to different people. You don't know what's on their hearts, really. How do you know someone is really a believer and someone is not? Why, this person shows up to church, has a Bible, reads, I mean, sings in the choir and all the rest. That doesn't make someone a Christian. You don't know who possesses Christ and who only professes to know Christ. Well, you don't know what's on a person's heart, but God does. And you know how God figures out what's on your heart? Through his word. That's the context of the very next verse, which we 
are familiar with, verse, tw- verse 12. You can hide in the crowd and act like a Christian just because you show up at church, but the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the reason why people don't read the Bible. Because you think you're reading the Bible, but that's not true. The Bible is reading you. It reads you. It knows. You expose yourself to Scripture, and you'll find out if you're rightly related to the God who is there. Now, I challenge you in this next year to read Scripture. So I've been doing this for 22, 23 years. At the beginning of every new year, I'd like to offer to you this. It's a very simplistic kind of a Bible reading plan. Here it is. I developed it some years ago. Uh, it's not pretty. It's, it's just a sheet on which are a bunch of boxes. Each box represents a chapter in a book of the Bible. So if you start at the beginning, it'll be Genesis. I don't know, there's 50-some-odd chapters in Genesis, so you'll see about 50 boxes. So the first box has the number one in it. That's Genesis chapter one. Box two, Genesis chapter two. So too for all 66 books of the Bible. There are no dates attached to it. I've tried read the Bible in one-year plans. Don't let me discourage you, but it doesn't work for me. Because if I get off to a good start the first five days of January and then blow it for the next five, I say, oh, my goodness, I am so far behind. What's the point? I'll just watch TV. <laughs> That's what I do. So I wanted to come up with a plan for success instead of failure. This is a plan for success because you, do you don't have to do this in the next year. You can take the next decade. You just read at your own pace. What's the difference? It's not a matter of going through the Bible. It's a matter of letting the Bible go through you. Do it at your own pace. So I'll tell you what I do. I might start in Genesis chapter 1. Once I read it, I fill in the blank. Very encouraging. Or maybe I think you're like me and a little obsessive compulsive. You know, you like to cross off things on your do list. If so, this is for you. So you see the boxes being filled in, and that's quite encouraging. You don't feel guilty. You feel encouraged. Good night. I'm making progress. Look at this. So here's my suggestion. Read anywhere you want to, but uh, whatever book you start at, finish. Why? Because the divine author of the books wrote these books the way any author writes books. How does an author write books? It's easy. With a beginning, a middle, and an end. (laughs) So if you just read Genesis 13 tomorrow, Matthew 5 next week, you're missing the flow intended by the author. Now, I will tell you one thing, one of the things I am praying about for our next pastor, I guess I, I don't know if I should or shouldn't, but I'm telling you this. I want someone who teaches me the Bible. That sounds like it ought to be likely, but I want someone, I don't care if he's got a good sense of humor, is handsome, like me, uh, is (laughs) creative. I want him to enhance my experience in the Word of God. I want it to be evident by the fact that he spent time in his study before Sunday. And is deepening my understanding of Scripture. Otherwise, why should I sit there and listen to him when I can go online and listen to better communicators? That's why people don't come to church anymore. They listen online. I don't want to listen online. I want the shepherd of the flock to feed the sheep. So I want someone, I'll call him a text-driven preacher. Now, he can have any personality he wants. But I want him giving me the text of Scripture. That means if, you, if we're going through Genesis, start in chapter 1 and keep going. After Genesis 1, you go to chapter 2. 
I don't want mixing around here, there, and everywhere because then you deprive people of the flow, the intended flow of the divine author. We desecrate scripture by doing that, and that's why there's so many people who are really biblically illiterate. It says here, it says there, but you don't know the context in which it was given. I blame the guy in the pulpit. You should too. I want a text-driven preacher, and I hope you do as well. Now, Freeman is a, is a text-driven preacher. Thank God for Freeman. He, he takes you through. It doesn't have to be the same way everyone does it. I just don't want to be floating around from one subject to the next, week to week. I'm not getting the point of the author here. You see what I mean? So anyway, if you're going to start doing this, whatever book you start in, finish it. Now, let's say you do Genesis. Then I like to hop into the New Testament. Well, maybe then you're going to read Matthew one chapter at a time. Now, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I like to spread out the Gospels over time so I don't read all four in a row. Let's say I read Matthew. I may then jump into the Psalms. There's 150 of them. I don't read all 150 in a row. You don't have to. I may read five, then do another book, then read another five Psalms, etc., etc. So then you check off or fill in uh, the, the box every time you read something, and when you're done, you throw it away, and I'll give you another one. Simple as that. I'm going to leave these here, and at the end of the class, if you'd like them, if you can bend down, that wasn't so easy. If you can get down there, <laughs> help yourself to as many of those uh, as you want, and I challenge you. Let the word of God read you. Don't be afraid of what it has to say. It is a mirror to your soul. It'll point out things in your life. It'll show you if you're rightly related to Almighty God. It'll challenge you if, though you've been saved by faith, you're trying to be sanctified by your own works. That's true of a lot of us as Christians. We don't want to do that. We've been saved by faith, and we're supposed to be sanctified by faith in the work of God as well. The word, the word of God will reveal to you whether that's the case or not. Now it goes on, verse 13. There's no creature hidden from his sight. You can't hide here. You see what I mean? You can't hide. You can hide from us. You can't hide from God. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. When we stand before him, you being a member of Sagemont Church gets you no points. The father's going to say, cool, but what did you do with my son? You see? So that's important. Therefore... More incentive to pursue Jesus. He's the hero. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, the Jews knew what was going on here. You see, the Old Testament priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, as far as they could get, once a year, Yom Kippur. Once a year, the high priest could get into the Holy of Holies. He could pass through the curtain into the Holy of Holies. Why do you want to go back under that system? says the writer, when your high priest, Jesus, has passed through, not the Holy of Holies, the heavens. This he did in his resurrection and ascension back to the right hand of the Father. It says, in case you don't know who he is, he's Jesus, the Son of God. Therefore, let's hold our confession. There is no better deal than to rest in the finished work of Christ. For we do not have, verse 15, a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. I don't care how good your pastor, your priest, your rabbi, your imam is. Uh, that, those people are just people like you. And at one point or another, they're going to blow it. They're going to be angry with you. They're going to be irritated. They're going to say an insensitive thing to you because they're just like you. They're just humans. Now, if we put them on, up on a pedestal, well, then we, 
get ready to take a hit when we see their real humanity. The only high priest you can fully trust and feel safe with is the one some of these people are thinking about turning their backs on. But he's the one you ought to run to because we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. What weaknesses? Every single one. Good night. Not only that, he's one who's been tempted in all things. All things? Absolutely all things. Yeah, but Jesus can't sin. Yeah, that's what made the temptation worse for him. Because when we're tempted, when it gets really rough, I'll tell you what we do. We just give in to it. Well, that settles that. But Jesus didn't have that option. He had to fight temptation to the death. Therefore, he can sympathize when we struggle with the temptation to sin. And he has done it. He struggled too. Uh, He has faced temptation yet without sin. You see, I don't feel entirely comfortable with someone who's just struggling like I am. But Jesus is not. (laughs) He has won victory over the very things that oftentimes triumph over me, my sin nature, since he doesn't have one. Good night. He's the one to run to. Where are you going to go? There's nobody like Jesus. That's the point here. Therefore, verse 16, let's draw near with confidence to what kind of place of authority? Well, it's characterized as a throne of grace. Let's do this so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. This is absolutely inviting. You sin, I sin. We do things we'd be ashamed for others to know about, but God already knows about it. We have not disappointed him. I'll tell you why. Disappointment means we didn't live up to someone's expectation. We've let them down. But God never had an unrealistic expectation of you and me. (laughs) He knows what we're going to do and not do. We don't disappoint almighty God. Therefore, hot on the heels of sin, we could call it what it is. We could agree with God it's sin and we could agree with God it's forgiven. We can charge up to his throne. It's called the throne of grace. Now, why would we do that? To find mercy and grace to help in time of need. In other words, we're working to enter into Sabbath rest. You have to do that again and again and again. And those Christians who fully appreciate their position in Christ are more productive than those who are still working for God's favor. Yeah, that's what it says. Now, My people of old came up with all kinds of requirements on the Sabbath. Once again, the more of those things you do, the more bragging rights apparently you have with God. So in the time of Jesus, there existed 1,521 things the rabbi said you cannot do on the Sabbath. 1,521. In fact, those things today have been categorized into 39 categories of work which is prohibited to be done on the Sabbath. And so the rabbis, for instance, said on the Sabbath, you cannot carry something, a load or a burden. But they had to decide, however, what is the weight of the burden that you cannot carry? And here's what they came up with. A burden is food equal in weight to a dried fig, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put on a wound, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet. If you got ink sufficient to write three letters, you have violated the Sabbath. You see what religion does? Now, I know I'm criticizing my people. I'm only doing it because they're the people of the book here. But this applies to you guys just as well. It applies to every 
world religion. All along, God made the Sabbath for man. And yet the rabbis wanted to have mastery over man. They want to take this day of rest and make it a day of work. And you got to worry about whether you're violating the Sabbath. So they spent hours arguing about whether a man could move a lamp from one place to another on the Sabbath. Whether a woman could wear a necklace. Whether you could uh, put in your false teeth. Whether a parent could lift up a child on the Sabbath. I was in Israel on the Sabbath with Bill Cole one time. We were in a hotel and we got in an elevator. And we get in, and uh, he's pushing the, the buttons, and it's not going. And this Orthodox Jewish guy got in and said to him, Shabbat, Shabbat. It's the Sabbath. That was called the Sabbath elevator. It won't. Uh, it's rigged to stop at every floor. Because if you push the button, you're engaging electricity, which is a form of prohibited work on the Sabbath. So Cole and I got in the Shabbat elevator in a, like a 16th floor hotel. We spent half our time in Israel in a goofy elevator. <laughs> the rabbi said you cannot take a bath on the Sabbath. Why not? Well, because the steam from the hot water might clean the floor. And this is work. They said eggs laid on the Sabbath could not be eaten because the hens were working. They said that if a flea bit you on the Sabbath, you could not hit it because to do so would be hunting and you cannot hunt on the Sabbath, flea hunting. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's a human thing. We really resist the grace of God because we got nothing to boast about if we give in to it. Therefore, even Gentile believers came up with laws just as crazy as these. For instance, in Scotland in the 17th century, a man was brought to court for smiling on the Sabbath. By the way, by Sabbath, then, they did not mean Saturday. They meant Sunday, which has come to be called the Christian Sabbath. That's not true. There is no such thing as a Christian Sabbath. The Sabbath was part of the law of Moses. It was given to the Jews Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. Please don't blur the lines. If you people want the Sabbath, then you got to take the rest of the law that comes with it, for crying out loud. You can't pick and choose what part of the Mosaic law you want to live by. Why do we meet on Sunday? It's not because it's the Christian Sabbath. We meet on Sunday to commemorate what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the Sabbath. This is the Lord's day upon which we meet. But anyway, so in the 17th century, on the Sabbath, the guy's brought in for smiling. Jonathan Edwards, maybe the most well-known American preacher. In fact, maybe his most famous sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards determined one time not to say anything humorous on the Sabbath. You see how he he was... How he's ladening the day of rest with all this kind of stuff. There were laws for every subject of what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. How much you could lift. How far you could walk. I remember I had a bar mitzvah. It's on Saturday on Shabbat. You have to walk to the synagogue. You cannot ride in a car. That's a form of work. We lived a mile away. My elderly grandmother, Orthodox Jewish woman, therefore walked with me. Hand in hand, we walked. It was a hailstorm in upstate New York. We were pelted with this stuff on the way. And I think we thought we're getting some points with God for getting hit with this hail. And those who rode there, I'm telling you in our hearts, we really thought we had a better shot to get good grades with God than they did. 
They wrote, you see what religion does? Any form of self-righteousness. Listen, folks, either Jesus paid it all or you're a partner with him. And if you're a partner with him, you cannot enter into rest. You've got to figure out how much you've got to do to add to what he has already done for us. So there were all kinds of rules, and they were suffocating, and, and they keep piling on more and more. Just recently, a few years ago, the rabbis in Israel had to decide on this. If you're in a synagogue on Shabbat and the roof caves in, are you permitted to lift the rubble off the people in it? They actually had to rule on it, and wow, after who knows how much time debating it, they decided, yeah, to save someone's life, you can lift off a brick from that person's chest. Give me a break. You know why religion thrives? Because people like you and I like it. I don't have to work hard at entering into rest. I can do some works that I could brag about. I can wear all this religious garb to stand out in the crowd. Long beards, curls, this, that, big crosses, who knows what. Collars, this, that, and the other thing. I can distinguish myself from the crowd. No. When the only distinction between people are those who have entered into Sabbath rest and those who are working for their salvation. That's the only, that's the only distinction. How ironic, because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. On the seventh day, the Sabbath, God rested, meaning his work of creation was finished. And God wants us to labor to enter into Sabbath rest, not a day. It's a lifestyle indicating that we have rested, ceased from our efforts to make ourselves righteous in his own eyes. We have chosen to rest in the finished work of Almighty God. Folks, creating the world was God's magnificent physical work, and then he rested. Sending his son to be our substitute was God's magnificent spiritual work, and now he invites us to enter into the rest based on the finished work of Christ Jesus. We wish each other a happy new year. I'm telling you this could be a happy new year. If you and I get up every day doing the hard work of laboring to enter, into Christ's rest. You know what the hardest thing for us to do in 2020? Nothing. Except that which is in response to the finished work of Christ. If whatever we're doing is because we think we have to store up our good works to sustain God's favor, oh no, that is not Sabbath rest. If the things we are doing, we are doing because we think if we don't, we should fear God's response. Ah, that is not Sabbath rest. If the good things we do, we do to please God because we want to say thank you for what he has done for us. Ah, you and I have it right. Then we have it right. Want to hear the good news? You don't have to do anything tomorrow. If you have Jesus, you have God's favor. If you have Jesus, you will be doing things differently. <laughs> Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He's new. The old things have passed away, not by some external religion compelling you to do stuff, but by internal revelation due to the presence of God's spirit in you. I wish you a happy new year, but to do it, we have to do the hard work of not working. <laughs> we have to do the hard work of resting in the merits of Christ. Yes, brother, back.
Yeah. So Mac brings up a great point. At the end of verse 13, that passage, there is this God with whom we have to give an account, which seems to fly in the face of what I'm saying. Yeah, but it doesn't. Remember context. They're not talking about Christians giving an account for how they lived the life. They're talking about a mixed group of Hebrews, only some of whom were saved, others of whom were not, others of whom simply professed. But they could hide in the body. No. Maybe from one another, but not from God with whom we have to make do. In other words, don't let your being a Baptist, a Catholic, or a this or that think think that, that you're in. You may think so, but there is a God with whom we have to make do. And your denominational affiliation means nothing with him. What you have done with his son means everything. Now, you can fool everybody else. I think that's what's going on, Mac. But you can't fool God. His word strikes to your heart. And one day, after all this, you still have to give an account to him. Oh, God, I went to church. I was a member of Sagemont Church. I sang in the choir. I did this and everything. But you didn't enter into Sabbath rest, you see. That's the context. See, by the way, context is everything. Otherwise, you can really trip yourself up. Now, next week, Lord willing, we'll be in 6, Hebrews 6. Why not 5? I messed up the order of things. And my dearly beloved brother Chuck, therefore, took chapter 5. Therefore, we're going to chapter 6, the first 10 verses. Very controversial passage. It's about salvation. Can you lose it? We're going to talk about it. Context there is everything. Context, con- that's why I want a text-driven pastor. Otherwise, man, you can just pull things here, there, and everywhere. They seem to make the point, but they're not. All right, listen, we're going to pray uh, before more people leave. Yeah. I'm, telling you, I'm telling you, you're losing God's favor by doing this. I'm telling you, right? Lord Jesus, thanks for everything. Everything has been accomplished by you. Everything necessary in order for us to be safe, comfortable, and in a vibrant relationship with your Father. It's because of you, your merits, oh God. If we boast in anything, it has to be the cross on which you suffered and died in our place. Perish the the thought that we would seek to portray our good deeds before you as a means of being right with you. Oh no. It's your unbelievably inexpressible gift offered to us by suffering and dying in our place. I pray, oh God, during this next year, we may see you being our cheerleader and thus bear more fruit for you and the kingdom in 2020. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. Hebrews 6 next time. Hey, here are these Bible reading lists if you want them. They're right up here.